Well, I mean, God, see, the thing is, okay, so today's horrible thing that I'm going to just drop on everybody is unforgettable knowledge is that Vulcans and Romulans, like everybody says they're the same, but actually the entire Romulan identity is defined by having even angrier eyebrows. And that extends like the whole thing, like you know, they've got like the brow ridges that are kind of angy and they've got, you know, the personalities, which are obviously quite angy, but then even like the shoulder pads, the giant shoulder pads are all like built into that same V shape of the angry eyebrow. <laughs> and once you think about it from like that perspective, their aesthetic becomes like a complete and coherent agent. It's, it's like a fucking tautology. They are just angry eyebrows. <laughs> okay. So however you're transitioning, get your eyebrows done. Well, speaking of <laughs> transitioning and painting on eyebrows, we're going to talk about comedy today on Gay Space Communism, your favorite leftist Star Trek debacle. I, of course, am Paul Byron, and I am joined with the full complement of crew. Sound off, everybody. Corey Archibald. I'm Rachel, and I'm gay. I'm Amy. Well, let's move straight along into a segment that I've begun calling uh, Star Logs, because whatever. TV shows. You're watching Star Trek. What do you well, what do you what do y'all watch? What do you yeah, talk to uh, me. it's captain's logs, but we're all captains because this is a horizontal organization. I've uh, I've been part of those and uh, let me tell you, that hierarchy is not flat, it's just hidden. Yes. Exactly. This is just, true. Just turn it the other way and you catch the light. You can see that you can see the sharp boundaries of where you're allowed to talk to and the uh, inf the semi permeable information barrier. Yeah. Semi permeable information barriers. A very good way of putting it. That being said, someone say the name of a television show or a, a, yeah, like what do you Yeah, we, we've been watching cartoons and shit. Yeah, it's still pandemic ish, uh, sadly. Unfortunately, yeah. we're back into the full burst of it. And I've been like social distancing again in spite of being fucking vaccinated because people I know have friends who are just dropping dead even though they're vaccinated, which is great. It's so good. It's fucking awesome. I love it. I love this country. Anyway. Uh, well, it turns out baking a whole Petri dish to breed new virus variants in really shows you how fast evolution can operate. It sure yeah. can. It's fucking nightmarish. And that has nothing to do with the shows I've been watching. Um, I've That's probably wise. I have at this stage of the pandemic completely exhausted all of the Star Treks. Like literally, I have watched every single Star Trek thing. Yeah. Except for the original animated series, because I don't know where oh. to watch that. Where is it? What? Where can I find oh, that's, that? That was on it's pretty it's sure on it's Netflix. on the streams. It's on the yeah, it's all in the places in the normal it's with the normal garbage Star Trek. Okay. Up. Well then I am gonna have to like, watch if that. You, one. If they have TOS, they have TAS. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then I'm gonna yeah. do that. It's on Netflix, it's on I'm able to watch it on Amazon Prime. So it's a lot of different places. So what have I been watching during this, the 700th year of the pandemic? I have been watching anime, mostly. I just watched a really impactful one. It's hard to explain because it's called uh, Violet Evergarden. Yeah, that's an anime name. Yeah, and it just sort of popped up on Netflix for me. And I was like, this character looks exactly like Saber from Fate Stay Night. But sure, whatever, we'll mess around and see where this goes. And then it ended up actually being this really like emotionally different difficult like character study of this girl who was like clearly super traumatized and like you know child of war and her whole life was fucked up and like then she survives the war and the war is over and she's trying to figure out like what to make of her life now that she's no longer a weapon Wow, it doesn't sound like there's any politics in that fantasy program. <laughs> well, the thing is, it's 
Uh, yeah, man. It is not political in the way you would expect it to be. Like, it's not necessarily even anti-war. I mean, it depicts war as a horrifying and horrible thing, but, like, it's not about that, even. It's about, like, the human emotionality and, like, connection of language. Because her job is she's writing letters for people, and she's a ghostwriter. And she's trying to, like, help people articulate these, like, really complicated or difficult things or whatever. And that's sort of the the through line of all of the episodes. And it's actually really cool. I liked it a lot. I mean, I, I think that I will dispute that characterization of it not being, I mean, like overtly political in terms of that, but I think everything that portrays war in a realistic and horrifying and destructive fashion is political because that's not most depictions of war, right? And like that it has a horrifying yeah, sort of psychological the glory thing. Even even if you're just yeah. writing the letters that I'm going to assume you're redacting and like, sell, I don't know, whatever you're doing, dealing with the feelings of having war is hell. That's why they call it that. I don't yeah. know. I, I yeah. mean, I, yeah. I'll, but I like that sounds interesting. I, I mean, I think it. the the politization comes in. I know we're going on a tangent already, but the politization of war comes in and whether you depict hell as something like traumatic and unnecessary or something like a crucible in which you get the fires bring the manhood out of you or something. Thing, yeah, right? exactly. Like if you celebrate, if you make it heroic, then people tend to think of war as a good thing, you know, as a good thing to do. To be a warrior is good, right? And that's like the same sort of Klingon versus Betazoid culture war, right? Klingons punch their way through their feelings. Beta Zeds are literally telepathic and just know what's going on in the other person's mind. But like that sort of difference in perspective is what I think determines the political leaning of any presentation of war. But it's also like it's not as much about the war as you might think. So, I don't know. It's really good, though. You should watch it. It made me cry my fucking eyes out a couple nights ago. Sorry, I can't. I'm not. I'm here for comedies and dumb bullshit. I already, <laughs> world's horrifying. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, that fair. sounds really good. I just, that's, yeah, I'm having enough time. What's the name again? Uh, it's called Violet Evergarden. Ooh. You would like it a lot if you are a neurodivergent person in particular, because basically she's super autistic. Like the, the oh, best way okay. to characterize her personality is she is very autistic, but without the like sort of sensory integration stuff. Like her, her interpersonal presentation is very autistic. I thought women got borderline instead. Haha. <laughs> no, uh, that's... Boy, a whole separate thing. Anyway, All right, we could do DSM podcast. Yeah, later. we're we're yeah um, we're like on a yeah. <laughs> this is a wild and fun tangent, uh, Corey. You probably had some things to watch and some stuff. You're you're chugging through uh, the uh, chronological. Or are you up to speed now? Yeah, no, I'm I'm still, uh, but I'm actually I'm I'm caught up to the point where I've finished the first season of Lower Decks and I'm getting ready when my because I, I finally Lower Decks is a Trek series that my husband is willing to watch with me again he I, I talked about this on the last episode how he won't watch Discovery because he doesn't like the fact that they tortured the tardigrade and even though they've moved far far beyond that he still like refuses to engage and but characterized he, uh, is, it as bad I, I mean, know they like, I this know is... all right Oh, sorry, anyway, Corey, please go on. Oh. Anyway, so I did finish the first season of Lower Decks, and I, I'm taking a longer time to watch, uh, you know, getting ready to start the second season, obviously, but taking longer time to watch because I'm watching it with him as opposed to, and he's got a very busy work schedule. So I'm doing that. But I actually also just binged a couple of other sci-fi series on Netflix to kind of fill the empty void of Star Trek content um, in my life uh, in between those, those times when I get to enjoy lower decks and that is we just recently had um adriel hampton on the show and he talked about love death and robots and i powered through that 
pretty quickly. That was a wild ride. Like what I was not expecting, like I, I realized from our discussion that it was a series of animated shorts and I knew that there were different animation styles. I wasn't expecting it to be like so like wildly individual. Like it starts off the first episode is three cute little robots like wandering around in a you know, post-human apocalyptic wasteland taking photos in diners and, you know, sitting next to skeletons and, you know, just having a cute little conversation about how humans used to run the earth and how they screwed everything up. And you think like, oh, this is going to be like a fun thing about robots. You know, the name kind of implies like a lot of robots. Um, No, next episode, just like radical wild, like the whole thing, every single episode was just radically different. And there was like a shocking amount of just like really egregious nudity and sex which I'm fine with all of that stuff but like it was just like oh well okay I guess we're gonna have a close-up of the bush here like that's okay um and I realized afterwards when I was kind of reading more details about the series that David Fincher is one of the producers and that explains everything just honestly you know that there you go um why is there so so much pubic hair in this film oh it's David Fincher (laughs) Damn. It's David Fincher. Yeah, that's that's okay. Now everything is clear. Anyway, so I did that. And then I think, Rachel, it might have been you that mentioned this a few months ago. A series called Sisyphus. Was it you that mentioned yeah. that? Yeah, it's awesome. I just finished that like literally today. And it Is, is that... It is a fuck. It is a mind fuck, and I love it. It's like sixteen episodes. Each episode is an hour, almost an hour and twenty minutes long. So it's like sixteen feature length films. Yes. And it's essentially like one gigantic Star Trek time loop episode crashed together with Memento, and it's amazing. It's yeah. so good. It's so good, and the characters are great, and like just yeah, it's the it's soundtrack is fucking fire. Like I've already got the soundtrack yes. playlist on my Spotify. Like oh fuck yes, like I've actually yeah, I'm I'm already ready to watch it again. It's that good. I am so, so stoked about this like new appearance of just multinational media just existing yeah. in my Netflix now because it's great because I've exhausted basically everything worth looking at in the United States. You know, <laughs> so I'm like <laughs> hell yes, give me the novelty. <laughs> Yeah. No, so listeners, if you have not checked out Sisyphus yet, highly, highly recommend. And if you have, watch it again and again and again and again. Honestly, for a show that is about a time loop, it is the kind of show that you could actually watch again and still get a lot out of. Uh-huh, because there's so much going on. It's like really complicated. Like it does not hinge on what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like, it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. Mm-hmm. Nice. And actually, that's kind of the core point of the show, I think. Well, that's fantastic. Um, I mean, I've kind of gone a different way with my COVID-2 viewing. I'm watching an anime about Mahjong. Hell yeah. How's I can't that? actually tell you the name of it because it's my housemates that are watching it with me. But mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a uh, yeah, delight. You'd hate to dox them by being the three people that knew anything about this <laughs> fucking anime. <laughs> Um, well, I feel bad because there's actually more than one, and I should recommend the right Mahjong anime that with romantic overtones. Oh God, you'd hate to like accidentally show up with car morphers or something like your grandma at Christmas, and you're like, oh, they got you the Mahjong anime like you said you liked. We have Mahjong anime at home. The Mahjong anime we have at home. This is Queen's Gambit. Yeah, this is definitely we have Mahjong anime at the gay club.
Fuck yes. I am here for it. I, like, God, how to explain anime to people who didn't just sort of grow up watching it, you know? Because, like, you have to get pretty far down the fucking rabbit hole before you're, like, able to get anything out of watching Mahjong anime. But once you're there, it's like, oh, this is great. But it's, like, a weird, like, addiction. Oh, actually, I can totally explain this. I've been thinking about this a lot. So, all right, the way the Venture Brothers kind of takes everything from the last 50 years of comics culture and sort of science fiction and adventure pulp novels and all of that and like makes it like bloop squeezes out these like fucking beautiful pearls of full-on reference and like deep deep references that reward you for having watched decades of cartoons that happened in japan in the last 20 years and they did it 10 times faster so everything <laughs> is so deeply layered with self-referential and other referential pieces that even food <laughs> wars the anime where they cook food in a giant food cooking school in an iron chef battle on a very regular basis each battle is kind of framed out and visually constructed in a way that references other anime so there's like a jojo's bizarre adventure cooking battle and there's like a fucking yes. Yu-Gi-Oh variant so like all of the things like fold into each other in a way where every piece of the media now has that sort of meta commentary layer that you only get from like the high-end satire because of our sort of propagation of single franchise brands i think as opposed to sort of the shonen multiple choice like the oh hey we've made a thousand animes and like a bunch of them just crashed and burned and we made some into cartoons and one piece has been going since you were born shit yes. like that so uh that's it that's my take on well, so here's the thing is I think there's like, I think you're most of the way there for a unified theory of anime. I think you got to dial it back a little bit. Everything is either like Speed Racer or Sailor Moon or Jojo's Bizarre Adventure or Berserk. And I know there's probably one or two that I'm forgetting, but there's like five or six like core anime. One of the robot ones, which was the first one, Voltron. I was thinking Voltron, and ultimately I was yeah. characterizing all of the, uh, I believe the Sentai Truther Club would have some words about this, but ultimately all of your pastel teams kind of fall into one, into that kind of Yeah, place. well, I think there's something to be said for the transformation magical girl genre being its own thing, which is why I list legit. Sailor Moon. Legit, legit. But yeah, but then there's like, those are the sort of nexuses, those are the classics, right? Yeah, the neckties. And you sort of extrapolate from there, and it's just sort of like this like weird, bonkers, fractal expansion that has happened. I agree with you on it being just a bunch of like references to references to references, though. But I mean, those things are assumed and like left in. And yeah. if you only watch one anime ever, for the love of God, watch JoJo's Bizarre Adventure specifically. Oh. Well, I guess that leaves me um, the one who's not really watching an anime this time, which is wild because that's I've been watching a lot of One Piece and it's a very, very good show still. Uh, but actually, uh, I was going to be transitioning more nerdy than Star Let's Trek. See what I have anime. here is a transition because I have been rewatching Lower Decks in anticipation of the drop tonight. Ha ha! We're recording too early and too late uh, of Lower <laughs> Decks season two, which is tonight, and it got me kind of thinking because I've talked about this before and, it and something specifically you, Rachel, said the other day, which is you don't care for people that cannot. Uh, embrace clowning right and like being able to make fun of yourself and Star Trek was one of the more self-serious properties in I mean all of media for quite some time I think until Lower Decks right like because like Star Trek is notoriously bad at comedy and it has to take itself seriously otherwise it becomes goofy but I think the creators of, of Lower Decks have been given immeasurable and well-earned praise for being able to strike this wonderful balance between respect for the world and canon and also playing up the 
that, yeah, you, you, there's a cum filter on the fucking holodeck and you got to clean it. And that sucks. And the, ultimately, like that, they've been able to do a really good job of this. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what comedy does, why it, like in both in Star Trek and universe and in Star Trek, the television program. So where would we like to start, folks? Because I think we actually, you know what? I, I'm driving. I get to start. Uh, we're going to talk about comedy's function yeah. in human in our world and like what it does and why it's a thing that you like and it happens. Why like there's this weird thing that makes your brain vibrate your diaphragm and it only really happens when something's broken and you can't figure out why. I mean, like, right, we scientists do not know why we laugh exactly. There are several competing theories. There's benign violation. There's a cognitive dissonance resolution system. Uh, but ultimately, nobody really super understands why comedy happens. But it's definitely not as funny in Star Trek. And I think my embrace of Doomer and Gallo's humor, which is already kind of my gig in this, the world that we live in, feels like there's no reason to go back because if you cannot help people laugh through this, then you're just helping them ignoring it is not going to make it any better, clearly. And this may, there are other approaches to comedy. But yeah, so why isn't Star Trek funny? In theory, to me, it is because it's a lot better of a world. And uh, in part, everyone's a lot nicer to each other. So there's substantially less roasting going on, that's for sure. But there's also just, I mean, I don't need to resolve massive, stupid contradictions in my world because, well, a bunch of them are resolved because it's fine now. Like a lot of jokes play on power dynamics and uh, change relationships and social status and institutions that you can't actually criticize, but whose mortal in, uh, and sort of representatives can be. And like, uh, you know, priests being dumb, your local government, uh, whomever, you know, um, and that sort of, I think that in, that a lot of the sort of one, the authority of the institutions is actually authoritative. So there is no need to make fun of them behind their back. You can just be like, what are we doing? Why? And they're like, oh, because of science stuff. And you're like, well, I mean, that sucks. I don't like it, but it is a really good reason. I will take it on the chin, you know? Um, thoughts. And I don't mean to accuse y'all in that declarative tone. I mean, <laughs> do, do you have, yeah. do you thought well, I, have I thoughts? I do. <laughs> I do have some thoughts. You know, you're. I take so much to heart your point about how Star Trek has historically has not embraced its comedic chops. There's definitely been a few attempts, and we're going to talk about some of those attempts and how they did or did not work. Mostly did not. But I think Lower Decks is, I mean, it's brilliant. Our buddy uh, Will, the Star Trek communist, refers to it as the most Marxist Trek since DS9. And I think he's right about that. Strongly agree, yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's particularly poignant right now and it's resonating in a particular way in this moment in our history for a few reasons. We have been living through an apocalyptic hellscape for the last couple of years. Don't know if anybody's noticed that, but you know, we have been. And so we really need some humor and some of that doomer humor is, is perfect for kind of where we are as a society, but also humor and comedy in particular has always been used as a vehicle to expose social institutions that are bad and need to be destroyed. And Lower Decks is brilliant at that. So it's perfect for where we are because we need that humor. We need that release just as human beings, but we're also in a space where collectively as a society, I think people are more receptive to a message like, hey, you know, sometimes, maybe most of the time or all the time, the boss is shit and you shouldn't <laughs> give all of your power to the boss and uh, maybe we should challenge power. And I, I think that the, the general themes of uh, the, the, the working class in Starfleet is tremendously uh, impactful at this particular moment in history. And I don't know if it would have resonated the same way even 10 years ago.
Yeah, you know, I don't know much about like why humor exists in general, but I sure love that it exists to ridicule oh, power. Guys fall down, it's funny. Humor is a coping strategy. And this is exactly, like, if you exist out in the world, most of the funniest people are deeply traumatized. And if you look at like cultural sort of milestones, like cultures that have like a dark sense of humor in particular, are generally cultures that have survived some kind of genocide, right? And like, it comes from coping, ultimately. And I agree that it's about, to an extent, ridiculing power but i think also it's just a way to vent it's a way to talk about things that are intensely painful without having to actually revisit the pain well and i mean i think that speaks to the, the relationship with power right like if you can't fight yeah. power, if you can't actually resist the things that are happening to you the thing you can take the piss out of it at least to steal an expression from the english yeah. who maybe don't need as many expressions about comedy as they have given the circumstances Okay, so this brings to mind the obvious and easiest inroad into like Star Trek being a not funny place. And it kind of ties into things we've talked about before in terms of cultural, what survives the Third World War. Uh, and it's the episode, The Outrageous Okona. This is an episode with a dumb space pirate, which violates some of uh, Gene Roddenberry's rules for Trek. But it also stars strangely popular 1980s and 1990s figure and dead heat star Joe Piscopo. Yeah. This is the one where Data was learning how to be learning comedy, right? Yeah, he uses the holodeck to try and figure out how jokes work because, like, he's a real jerk. To, and, like, this also gets revisited in a, in one of the movies, I believe, also. But, yeah, Data's trying to learn about comedy, and he goes to the holodeck, and he whips himself up Joe Piscopo in a suit in, like, a 1990s brick wall, velvet fucking curtains comedy club. Like, just doesn't exist and didn't <laughs> exist at the fucking time. I mean, it was really like that. Yeah, like, the Goodfellas Club, basically, is where they're hanging hanging out here and he's teaching him how to do material and he's really bad at it but that's the surviving com it's that and you've got Chaplin and this is the extent of the comedy that has made it to the 24th century so like there's no George Carlin Mitch Hedberg Richard Pryor any like any of the people that you might think of as being very funny nope none of that lasts sorry we just get Joe Piscopo telling hack jokes because, like, Star Trek writers aren't joke writers. So, like, the jokes they end up writing and material they end yeah. up writing is not good material, even though they could have gone next door. They were CBS people right there. Like, they were people doing sitcoms that were way funnier than the shows they were on in that building, near them, at the CBS yeah. studio lot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you think they could have bumped into a few of those on their way to the costume shop? Yeah, right. Like, hey, Raymond, everyone loves you. Will you come do a thing? Deborah, the, the, the transport is broken. All right. No, that's, and I, I mean, I, and there's something to the serious, the self seriousness of the show. It's a melodrama. It's not supposed to be funny. I am supposed to take these moral issues seriously and consider the characters at risk and consider there to be danger and the sort of, I don't know, quippy writing of the Joss Whedon and the sort of Marvel movie universe hadn't really been built into all me. It had, was not a feature of every piece of media yet. And it's curious to watch them this way because I think Discovery does some of them but mostly it does them as like this memeable images where it's like, I love science. And like, okay, like don't look directly at the camera, please, for the sizzle real thing. Like, that's not a joke. I don't know. What do y'all think? What, is there is there comedy in Starfleet? Are we doing jokes elsewhere? Is there other, like, I mean, besides having to go to Data's hologram thing, like, are there comedy holodeck programs? What what, what are we thinking here? What do we got? What what else you got? For, like, the comedy in-world, in-universe. We'll pick apart some of the show uh, and how they write in a little bit, because they've definitely got, you know, a lot of other mechanisms yeah. for humor and joke-like things, but that are not straight. They're like, but the universe itself, nobody's really that funny. 
Yeah, no, I mean, and to the extent that they are, it's usually presented as unintentionally funny. You've uh, highlighted a few episodes that you would like for us to talk about where the comedy that does exist really revolves around like simple misunderstandings. Oh, to Paul's talk, Data 7 Odo, don't get it. They've taken the yeah. metaphor literally. <laughs> sort of things is, is a big one. Uh, and that's not a joke. Those yeah. aren't jokes. That's, I mean, it's cute and it's, it kind of can make you laugh and it does create a moment of comedic interest, but not a joke. Yeah. I think the only kind of sustained humor presence in any of the other shows besides Lower Decks is really around the Ferengi in DS9 generally, but particularly the way Quark and Rom interact with the rest of the crew, that that's kind of like a running thread of humor and conflict of values there that is, is certainly valuable territory. I think they do a lot of comedic relief sort of aliens, generally speaking. Yeah. Like, Dr. Phlox was a source of comedy in kind of an otherwise shitty show. But, like, Dr. Phlox, I think of as, like, an example of the sort of comedic relief alien species. And I think that a lot of the Star Trek, I don't know, comedic ethos comes out of that sort of cultural mismatch, right? And the sort of absurdity of the other. Well, there was a that was a perfect setup on Enterprise because it mm-hmm. was a ship full of humans with one. Uh, what what is a uh, Flox's alien species? I forgot. Oh, I it's forget. Like, I, I know it. They're but it just I said it before it came up. Denobulence. Denobulence. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> the poly Yeah. Species. So it, it was a ship full of humans with one Denobulin and one Vulcan and everybody else was in. And you had a little bit of the same dynamic on Voyager, which was mostly mm-hmm. humans, but they did also have other species. But, you know, the comedy of errors there in the context yeah. of Enterprise is the fact that it was the first time that humans were spending sustained like long periods of time together in confined spaces with other species. Like really forming relationships. Right. You know, and I'm thinking even in the original series, I will never forget there's like a 100% all but a rim shot at the end of it joke where Spock mentions liking cats. (laughs) And it's like one of those things where it's like, well, of course you would like cats. You're the weirdo, right? Yeah, right. You know, it's like, oh, you're the weird autistic one. Of course you like cats. You have cats burgers. <laughs> we, on the other hand, are American dog boys. Bark, 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 bark. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, listen, there's so much to be said about, like, ableism and fucking just straight out misogyny and the way people frame cats and dogs. But, I mean, I do think that, you know, that's another very good example of sort of making the, the alien character the punchline. Yeah, and like, yeah. so we've also got another category that I'm uh, calling, golly, it's different in the future. And this is where you get <laughs> your Star Trek Four. That's the whales one, right? Yeah, Voyage Home. Uh, Star Trek Four. the whole, no dipshit, ma'am. That whole line of, of joke where it's like, oh, let's take him to the 80s and have him not understand stuff. He'll pick up the mouse and say, <laughs> hello, computer. That'll be fun. <laughs> and then uh, also one of the other ones, which again, ties back to our favorite comic relief characters, the Ferengi. That's right. The Roswell episode where they go back in fucking time and go to Roswell, New Mexico and are the are the alien landing. It's great. Yeah. And you got your Mulder Scully people there, which like that episode is uh-huh. a comic. Like that is an episode that is like one of the only episodes of the show yeah. that was written for that era of that show that's actually genuinely funny. 
Yeah, well, and it's and and who does it center? The Ferengi. So my points. No, yeah. no, I'm still with it. But yeah, absolutely. Riker too. Yeah, Riker's got some good jokes. I know this is oh, like yeah, a pivot, but Riker, like the the time he tricks Picard into Jamaharon is really funny. All right, hey, why don't you go pick me up one of them boner statues while you're out there? Yeah. <laughs> Also, a lot of great comedic moments around Picard and children. Oh, yeah. He's not good at it. And I love that about him. He's like, he's very one, bad. hello, children. <laughs> You'll all be older eventually. And then we'll have conversations. <laughs> Goodbye. Uh-huh. And that kind of speaks to the stress relief aspect of humor, too, right? Because if you don't know how to interact with children, it's stressful because they're not like adults. They're very different. You can't be like, well, I'm in, I'm in charge here. So you have to not cry when I tell you, you did about, oh, no, you're a child. Yeah, yeah. Oh, dear. Well, there's that whole episode where he's trapped with all of them. Like you say, Paul, it is also speaking to power in as much as like what makes that situation funny and what creates the tension is Picard is trying very hard not to make it worse. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't know how because he realizes, like, you know, he recognizes he has power to harm these children. Yeah. And he's trying to avoid hurting the children. He's trying to, you know, not be cruel no, to children. No, your parents are all probably okay and not floating around in a bunch of warp plasma just outside this hall wall. Bonk, bonk. I mean, no, we're going to make it, kids. Let's let's get on and go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like one of the best parts of him, him trying to like calm their fears is they're climbing up the ladder through the Jeffries tubes. And he's like, we know what we need. We need a song to calm ourselves down. And he starts singing Frere Jaca. Like it's the 24th century. And that's the song that comes to mind. Like you are so not, you don't know children. Like, like yeah. don't y'all know this Klingon <laughs> opera? Sing along, kids. <laughs> like I know Baby Shark didn't exist back then, but come on. Like something had to be closer. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, god damn it. Of all the songs he could have picked. Well, he's French. <laughs> this is true. But I mean, like, that's the whole other thing is like, how the fuck does nationality work once you become a spacefaring species? Hey, whoa, whoa, like, whoa. Keep focused. This right. is the comedy episode. I can't. I, whoa, I did not do any research for that. <laughs> uh, do you all remember, if we can go back to the, the Roswell Ferengi episode, like, uh, for please, a second. As many times as we possibly can. That shit's amazing. <laughs> There's a couple of parts that just are like some of my favorite, like, moments in, like, all of television history. And that's like, when before they get the universal translator on and they're trying like the the uh americans oh, yeah neither their... of them can understand each other there's like right. the military guy and the two x-files people and the two of them are just sitting there like i don't know what the fuck are they talking about either i don't speak human and so they they're watching rom and quark and and nog all beat themselves on the heads trying to get their translators to kick in and they're like oh maybe it's some kind of greeting and then they all start like staring at them and like beating their heads yeah, like, <laughs> oh. they look like a bunch of monkeys <laughs> Did y'all, so did y'all ever play that that improv game where it's like you have to explain something in gibberish or something? I mean, there's a few games with that. Yeah, I've played some games this year. Yeah, you know, like uh, yeah. explain the function of this imaginary thing in gibberish, you know? And yeah. uh, I always felt like that whole scene was like, oh, oh, we're watching the pros do that. Ha, ha, like I've seen plenty of amateurs attempt this game. I've paid ten dollars to be served yeah. a beer by a volunteer to watch people play this game. <laughs> <laughs> That's a form of subtweeting, just to be clear. Uh, anyway, okay, so uh, the Roswell Ferengi. All right, another great Ferengi comedy episode: The Magnificent Ferengi. The other greatest Ferengi episode in all of Star Trek. Yes, yeah, it's where they amazing. get where they get the whole gang back together, even the stabby Ferengi, and they go <laughs> a ransom a fucking Vorta. Yeah, it's so and like they, they go to Terok, the other. Deep, and there was deep. a very there was a very special guest in that episode too, playing one of the Vorta. Remember that? 
Oh wait, no. I mean, I remember that for that actor. I remember it was a different Vorta. It was like not. A, it was like Wayun Twelve or some other what some other Vorta, but. Yeah, it was. I'm looking it up right now, so cut this part out, Rin. <laughs> uh, you mean Iggy Pop? Yes, Iggy Pop. <laughs> yes. Who they didn't <laughs> have you. to do any lightening on him. They had to apply no matte finish to his skin for him to look just like that. He's just already pale yeah. as shit. Gone. It was one of those situations where he wanted to be on the show. He was a fan of the series and wanted to be on the show. And he just said, you know, whatever. I don't care what role it is. And that's the role that they wrote for him. And I just thought it was just genius the way because he plays such a marvelous straight man to the, the you know, the foil of the. the oh, yeah. We'll just kill all of you. He's like, oh, shit. Yeah, you're here for business. Also, hey, let's back up and remember that that episode includes a weekend at Bernie's style puppeteering by Nog. Yes. <laughs> they kill their Vorta and attach a bunch of electrodes to him and have him sort of flail around being a guy. And they do the handoff and it's very, very weird. Yeah, I mean, these are things that would pass for humor if the writers of a sitcom put a laugh track under them, right? It's not like Star Trek isn't trying just as hard as everybody else. Well, that's why we're here to celebrate this very, very isolated incident where this happens because most of the time it's just Bashir and fucking O'Brien keep losing at the Alamo because that's how the Alamo works and as Worf rightly points out if you want to win the Alamo you play a Santa Ana which right yeah, right not it's like yeah you got those little funny bits yeah. here and there but this one is like bona fide like a heist caper with a bunch of cartoon guys who are not soldiers and then they do weekend at Bernie's at Iggy Pop <laughs> <laughs> That is the best episode synopsis of any Star Trek episode ever. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm updating my onboarding app, actually. I think I'm going to start showing people that as their first episode of Star Trek. Well, that's fantastic. Oh, oh God. Here's here. This won't make this. The None of the rest of the show is like this. <laughs> you have to know Ferengi for it to be it's, it's funny. It's a good motivator, you know? You know, you, you watch the whole episode, and then you're like, okay, what was the fuck was that? And they're like, okay, I cool. Who are all these now? people in pastels the next time you turn it on? Like, why don't they have any patterns on their jackets? Oh, and that's so like, yeah, this is a great one. The Ferengi are a great opportunity for, I think it's there. I mean, it is their out of placeness in the Star Trek continuity as the capitalists that really gives them an opportunity for this because they don't have to live up to some other ideal. Uh, they don't have to be Cardassian soldier guys. They don't have to be lying Romulans. They don't have to be logical Vulcans. They don't have to be warrior Klingons. They can just be guys. They can just be who they want to be. And, well, more, the men can. Yeah, we, we can problematize the Ferengi elsewise, but like, I don't know. I think that is essentializing selfishness into masculinity in a way that is unfair. Well, I mean, okay, that's a fair point. They have, I mean, what I'm getting is they have more room to do dumb shit. Like the other right. character setups have to live up to something and that the Ferengi get to be cowards and get to be bad and not in like, and just like sort of as a matter of function, like in a way that you can kind of recognize is like, yeah. this isn't evil. They're just being cowardly. And that's, I mean, that's craven is can be yeah. funny and i think it, it gives them the room to do well, that in fact you know being bad might be part of the set of expectations they're working under right you know like that that is a lot of freedom i see what you're saying well, it's there. not necessarily being bad it's ultimately yeah that they're not like oh i don't have to uphold a huge civilization spanning thing except get money but to that point, though, I mean, look at the difference in how the Ferengi were played in Next Generation versus Deep Space Nine, because the, yeah. the basic underlying characteristics that you just described, Paul, were also present in the Ferengi in TNG, but they were presented as malicious. True. 
in that context as opposed to the comedic foil that they are in right. Deep Space Nine. Yeah, well, I mean, that they did not take this opportunity does not mean it is not, I mean, like, it, I feel like it's still difficult to get to your funny Klingon episodes. Like, yeah. where, show me your funniest Klingon episode, I guess, is my challenge to this, uh, is my defense for this position. <laughs> I mean. Right? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm sure they can find one. Oh, shit, Rachel's Googling. Uh, <laughs> Today is a good day to slip on a banana peel. There are some incredibly good Worf moments. Are you for kidding? sure? For <laughs> sure. But like episode, whole episode where Worf doesn't do a terrorism on Risa for being a prude. Yeah, yeah. There's all sorts of like terrible food taste good bit. Like the, the episode of Deep Space Nine called "Looking for Parvak in All the Wrong Places," the one where Jadzia finally gets him and hooks up. I mean, that's that's a great comment. But again, central figure in that episode, Quark going after Groka, the other Klingon. So that's again, in order for the comedy to really work, you got to have the the Ferengi in there. Yeah, and I mean, the other great Klingon gag I can think of is a Neelix joke because he fucks that Klingon lady out in the Delta Quadrant. Just to throw out other, but yeah, mostly it's like just sort of disparity pieces, like sort of, oh, they're, di oh, they're so different. Yeah. But like to Rachel's point or, or, you know, about how Neelix is often used as um, a comedic foil, you know, because he's different from all the other people on the ship. It's, it's the same way with Klingons. Like we're very familiar with Klingon culture. We're very steeped in Klingon culture at this point in the franchise. And, you know, here they're meeting up with a new kind of alien, the Talaxian. Yeah. And that's the comedy. Mm -hmm. Who doesn't remember when they were reading from the big scrolls in Klingon as a child for their, you know, whatever, the knife fight. I'm sorry, go on, Rich. I also, I, I think that the Ferengi are funny in a very sort of farcical way. The Klingons are funny in a more slapstick way. But I think that they're still funny. I think they're intentionally funny you know because like if you look especially yeah. i mean and this is like for the 90s era ones right obviously they changed that up a whole lot for discovery and like i'm really glad you aren't celebrating the tos ones because come on we already we already get yelled we might get yelled at that'd be bad because they're Listen, bad there's a lot of racism that. in star trek and anti-semitism in star trek Go cool. so please go on. So Klingons can be funny. No, anyway. they are. The, the, yeah, the TNG ones are definitely all the funny. Like I think, like all of their women run around with titty windows. That's funny. That's inherently funny. <laughs> like in every single scene with a Klingon woman has a titty window in it. Just point your little armed knife that pops out in the side. Just shove it right in here. Uh huh. So here's here's my theory of, of Star Trek humor. Um, no one is funny if they're trying to be funny. Ferengi are funny if the writers are trying to be funny. And Klingons are funny when the writers are trying not to be funny. Yeah, I agree. I think that that holds for sure. Here for it. And, and like, it's always funny to make fun of humans being parochial about something that is weird for us Earth people. But the cause everyone else has sex in their ears all the time, weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I think that's like the core of, I mean, obviously, right? Like, uh, we have a very anthrocentric perspective in Star Trek. Well, so look, I think when aliens write their, when, when other species write their own television show about us conquering space, they can send it here and I'll watch that. <laughs> Uh, you know, and I will. But no, but I do think it's worth saying, like, the locus of all of this, all of the humor of the entire series, and especially in terms of the sort of fish out of water capacities or interacting with, you know, unfamiliar cultures capacities, are all about pointing out absurdities in the human condition. I mean, I know it's like, wow, the show's actually about the human condition. Can't believe it. But like, I think it's, you know, it's important <laughs> to mention this, right? Because like, every single one of these is ultimately a reflection of some aspect of ourselves. And I think it's when you are looking at at yourself there's an absurdity to it that produces comedy organically like you either become like the west wing and insufferable right or you become like 
some kind of clown show like uh, Lower Deck says, right? Or, you know, if you land somewhere in the middle, you have these sort of more poignant relationships between these different cultures and alien species that are still ultimately sort of reflecting on ourselves. Does that make sense? For sure. I mean, well, I think that kind of speaks to why we let the Ferengi get the most comedic opportunity because you have to recognize it, it is the closest to 20th century Earth people. So it's like, oh, right. That is an asshole move. Well, we'd better yeah. not point it out too directly to me because like, they're like, well, I'm going to like live in a patriarchal war culture and kill people to achieve yeah. political gain. Well, that's not really the problem we have in the television watching yeah. world. Right. Also, the thought I was trying to articulate finally caught up with me. Thanks, ADHD. Yeah, I think it's it is uncomfortable to look at yourself. You know what I mean? It's it's always sort of weirdly alienating to look in a mirror and see other in your own self. You know what I mean? And I think that that tension is really kind of the the foundation of all of these comedies. That's why I like to do my LSD outdoors. Hell yes, I love looking at trees. <laughs> Certainly better getting trapped in Mirrorland with your face. It's got a lot of holes in Mirrorland it. Mirrorland is weird. Um, so that being Ugh. said. God, I I hate you for putting this in my brain. <laughs> um, so one show that really, uh, like, so uh, Voyager leaned a little further into it. They had a bunch of comedians that would come on. You had Sarah Silverman coming on to do the 24th century episodes. You had the. Um, you had that one time that Seven of Nine got drunk. We are as one. That was great. We are as one. Yes. <laughs> We are as one. To this day, uh, whenever so my partner and I get drunk, this is like one of the handful of episodes of Star Trek he's seen because he never watched it before I was in his life. Uh, but to this day, whenever I get drunk specifically, he'll say, we are as one to me. That's so good. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's very cute. Let's <laughs> yeah. fall into to Paul Spock, Data 7, Odo, don't get it somehow. But I love it's one of the best yeah. jokes. It's one of the great jokes they do. Like her her sort of reengaging with her own humanity is a lot different way than you get to see in a lot of the other characters characters uh but then also uh so voyager comes on the heels of a bunch of people growing up loving it being now famous comedy actors so you get jason alexander in the think tank episode mm -hmm. uh where he plays jason alexander but like george but smart so like a newman but anyway it goes as well as you'd expect <laughs> uh, and then you have scott thompson who plays like a, an ambassador from this weird puritanical culture and neelix is supposed to babysit him but then the guy's like i want to get hammered and fucking eat fried chicken and go have sex in the holodeck and he's like dude you can't yeah, yeah. all right let's go and then they do and it's and the whole joke <laughs> turns on the end of his boss is like yeah i probably would have eaten some of the fun shit too you know you're allowed to have a little sex on alien spaceships <laughs> you know and everyone's like oh you and that was the like it's this whole b plot of scott thompson leaning way way into it which is a lot of fun to watch because i've always loved watching him play big is always a good time but yeah and that one's a very good uh, like the the jason alexander episode that definitely was not much of a comedy he's just kind of snivelly and that's actually a more threatening and scary villain actually than a lot of other ones. So I'm happy yeah. for that. And you get some cultural... Yeah, it was, it was nice to actually see him play a little bit of a villain. Yeah, like he's not, you know, he doesn't get the most serious stuff, but he does a pretty good businessman, businessman. And he does, he's probably easy to put foam stuff on his head because of the bald. I mean, and I'll, I'll do respect to the bald. Uh, you got other ones where like, uh, oh, they're like an old Earth culture, which is like when the space Irish are asking for synthahol out of the replicator and he comes up to Worf and he says, hey, um, this stuff sucks. It doesn't hurt. It, it I it's yeah and he's like oh hang on i got this thing for you and he's like give him klingon blood wine it pours out he's like oh yeah, yeah. that kicks you right in the fucking teeth give me a big bag of this and i like yeah God. that uh that was it's like yeah because you sort of these isolated scenes and cultural interaction is a lot of where it comes from and again most of it isn't dialogue it is just oh circumstance oh look at the aplomb with which they're dealing with this what should be a complicated situation there was one interaction that is dialogue driven that is it's 
it's so dumb, but it makes me laugh out loud every time I watch that episode with the with the, the space Irish. And it's when uh, she's she's trying to clean up all the hay and the animal droppings. And Riker tells her, you know, it's this, this, the ship is self-cleaning. And she says, well, good for the bloody ship. Makes ah. me fucking laugh every time. Well, yeah, no, that's uh, that, that episode yeah. does does remind me of a simpler time when you could just kick somebody Irish and people would laugh. <laughs> hi i just want to say right now that italians aren't real italy isn't real stop saying it is you're only giving them power are you saying that the the more things change the more they stay the same <laughs> listen rome was thousands of years ago it's time to let it go <laughs> oh when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie that's a wormhole <laughs> oh so all right so we got a few other we actually stayed on the rails for a long time that like between those outbursts it was longer than usual for now, us we're gonna come back to one of my favorite <laughs> bits in the whole show that keeps coming back around because of a and it's like it's only in half the show right it's in it's just a deep space nine thing and there aren't really a lot of other things that have run this long but self-sealing stem bolts it's again it's another nog it. uh, concept <laughs> they bought them they have them they traded the yamak sauce for they got a whole the whole gift thrift the magi thing they do with the nog jake industries thing but and ultimately they end up getting like with the sort of shakespearean happy ending where they have the windfall but the self-stealing symbols keep coming back around because they have no purpose no one understands what they do the writers refuse to give them a purpose then like that's just one of those fun like oh we're gonna keep throwing this around because it's nothing it's not like saying oh yeah you know back when i was at wolf 359 like ooh, touchy subject bro but like yeah everybody can talk about <laughs> self-stealing symbols that's easy uh, nobody's wife died from that. Um, that. Well, okay, that we. I'm sorry, the litigation is still pending. I mean, I do think that uh, a self-sealing stem bolt. Well, first of all, I'm sure that they did it just because it's hard to say, and they like making the actors try to say self-sealing stem bolt, uh, like well, it's also, a normal Rachel, thing. Are you gonna Are you gonna wander around manually sealing all of your stem bolts like some kind of chud? Also, yeah, I figure there had to have been some kind of situation where somebody did get really hurt because it didn't seal itself or something. Well, because you like, didn't seal it, that's why it has happened. to self-seal. If I have to seal it, mm -hmm. there's a room for error. I could fuck that up. I don't want anyone to die in space from an unsealed stem bolt. <laughs> but they're but but that the whole comedy bit there is that they're not like they don't seem to have much of a purpose because if anybody on the whole station would know what to do with self sealing stumbled, it's Miles O'Brien. And there's that whole exchange where Miles is talking like, Oh, I know, they're not just stumbles, they're self stealing stumbles. And then he asks what they look like and he says, I, I don't know, I've never seen one. You know, so it's <laughs> Miles the mechanic has never seen one, doesn't know what the hell they're for. He's worked on every starship, this in up and down the fucking quadrant on every yeah. kind of culture's dipshit technology during a weird landing raid. And yeah, he doesn't know. He's never seen it. And yeah, I, I do. Yeah, it is fun. This like just throwaway object. When you think about it, self-sealing stem bolts are basically jackalopes. <laughs> what? Oh, well, jackalopes, you know, <laughs> yeah. the very real like animal. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's great. They're basically jackalopes. So, um, uh, yeah, no, it's just too good. It's so, uh, the show is not funny until now. It has always been funny. I mean, even, okay, let's go back to TOS, right? Mud's robots, or I'm Mud. That's, what, that's <laughs> the episode. Where he tricks them to come down, and they've got all the people with the little, the very nice, airy, and handsome people with all the numbers on their little uh, necklaces that light up. And they're all androids, and he's got an android of his ex-wife that he just turns on and off, which is weird, because that's, and then they cap 
capture the captain. But then they do like, okay, so you've seen the gifts of this, but it's that weird, there's a weird plays and they do little dances and like, and like just sort of trying to logic bomb the computers, which is just like a very, oh, ask him what love is and smoke comes out its ears, kind of addressing your robot situation. But it's very much like, <laughs> oh no, they wrote this knowing this was going to be ridiculous. Between that and the, the Hippies Herberts episode, I think TOS does still have some, uh, some comedic bits. I mean, even the episode that I uh, shoved in Tribbles. Tribbles, the episode I shoved into Grav's face, the piece of the action, Mobster Planet. That's got comedy to yeah. it. I mean, if only just because like, oh, this is what? What's that? Wait, what? Like you, you sure, you guys all <laughs> but, put on the outfits. And the Liberace episode, of course. That's a good one too. But I definitely think the Tribbles is the most comedic episode on the original series. I think that's pretty solid. I mean, it's the least the writers of TOS thought that was gonna be funny. Bullshit. Absolutely sure. bullshit. There is nothing funnier than Space Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah oh dang perhaps they didn't intend for that episode to be funny but that is the funniest this. episode by a mile that's true oh, my favorite my favorite part of that episode which is i folk spock is like well you're not sarek or you couldn't possibly be him he's been dead for centuries like yeah but would, would it kill you to wave and he's like no and he waves gives him the little he gives him this <laughs> Well, yeah, no, maybe, sure. But like, come on, just give it a, you know, give me a high five, bro. And they fight Genghis Khan. And it's great. It is a just, <laughs> it is a perfect shark jumping mistake. And I love that episode <laughs> so much. Like, it's an awful episode, to be clear. But it's awful almost in like the way the room is awful. Like, it's just so far out there. It's put together yeah. with such an obvious, like, nobody thought about what was going into this. They pulled this out of their asses at the last second with like, uh, what if he has to fight a zero um... budget? <laughs> and it shows. You can tell it was like a clusterfuck of an episode and every capacity. Well, this, this is that same the ethos that touches a lot of Star Trek TOS episodes. Ah, shit. What do we got in the costume box? Oh, uh, we got yeah, Lincoln. Exactly. Uh, I got Genghis Khan. Uh, whole, whole, Tilladahan. And what? What? Uh, yeah, I'll find a couple more. Just start the start writing. Exactly. Start writing. Space Lincoln. Go. Literally, yeah. And they just sort of worked backwards from there. Honestly, I suspect that the whole thing was them working backwards from the point he does a racism to Ahura. And like, going yeah. from there. How do we shoehorn in some weird lesson about being patient with old racists? I know. Space Abraham Lincoln. Right. Wow. Yep. That, that's appropriate to the era. Well, I don't know. I'm I'm just a simple country lawyer, not a not a space farmer, and here I am on SETI Alpha Six fighting Genghis Khan and a and a monster <laughs> pterodactyl. Oh no! Like really, truly. Oh. Uh, <laughs> So largely these broad categories of comedy of errors, comedy of manners, and those are just vague misunderstanding to cross purposes to Neelix having to apologize to the aliens that do the weird arm poses because Janeway can't stop holding her elbows out or whatever, which I mean, like, again, those kind of very funny, but often throwaways. you got your few genius, beautiful episodes that are absolutely comedies and funny. And then not a lot in terms of just humor. I mean, again, the Starfleets don't laugh. It's a very strange thing. I mean, I think it may be that comedy. Uh, yeah, we this we talked about this with Troy. The idea of what is media like if you're experiencing it now and you get to decide the endings of your right. stories. Well, now, okay. Well, cultural criticism is now kind of out because, like, well, okay, you can complain about the texture mapping, but you did the story. So if you didn't like that, that's you. And so, like, I can't make you know making fun of the way movies and stories play out is not necessarily as important or useful, or interesting of an avenue. And that's a lot of right. jokes. You can't make fun of people for being. Mm -hmm dumb or bad 
Uh, there's not nearly as many political and power tensions to really fuck with and sort of diffuse because you can actually approach most of them and change them or just they don't actually beat you in the head. They're just like, oh, well, that's kind of annoying, but I don't have to go to space. So it's not a big deal for me. Though come to think of it, some of the only actual jokes that characters tell about each other are complaining about each other's art. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's another painting by Data. Ooh. Well, it's not. Actually, Data's paintings are quite good, but yeah. Oh, this dude is so terrible. Even even complaining about each other's holodeck programs. I mean, like, let's talk about Captain Proton, which there's plenty of comedy there in the Captain oh. Proton episode. Oh, yeah. That a lot of people make fun of it. Like Seven, you know, the first time Seven gets invited to participate and she's, you know, she he tells her, oh, yeah, you got to stop this robot. And she like immediately like rips out its guts and she says, OK, the robot has been neutralized. <laughs> <laughs> it is wild i think that's about scripts right the, that whole thing is just about cultural scripts yeah she lacks the, the sort of background for dipshit spaceman melodrama it's just not a yeah. of the borg they're like why would we meet a captain proton we will overwhelm them with our superior numbers and technology well and it's funny because <gasps> now you know we've reached this point where simulacrum like that sort of space guy aesthetic circa like mid-century and like earlier duck dodgers where they were doing everything you know with like pie pans and stuff that aesthetic has become pastiche now but none of the people who are consuming the pastiche actually like grew up during the time when the original was on the air it's just like anime when you think about and that's it. it that's about wraps right. it up folks star trek is an anime come back next week for a brand new yep, star trek is anime west wing for communists We'll get on Wikipedia later, but we've talked it over in Star Trek as an anime. Yeah. It's a Sentai anime Sorkin show. <laughs> yep. <laughs> if we can get them. If, uh, so technically, these are all in IDW's licensed comics world. And you know what they do over there? Well, they cross over with Green Fucking Lantern. So now Star Trek is part of the DCEU. Um, that being said, no. <laughs> I'm going to burn everything to the ground. Uh, this is the Tommy Westfall universe always because that's where Star Trek actually lives. Uh, that's is one of my favorite things to think about while I'm parsing television production. Yeah, the Tommy Westfall universe, if you haven't dealt with that in your readings, it's stupid. It's just about the way that TV writers work in the fucking 90s because they just keep using the same company names, but it ties shitloads of shows together and because of guest stars and whatnot. Yeah. It all starts with MASH and then ends at St. Elsewhere, but includes Star Trek, The Simpsons, a bunch of other shows. Murder, She Wrote? I believe Murder, She Wrote is involved in the Tommy Westfall universe. Somebody made a big map because that's what people used to do before there was more internet than they could handle is they would do research on things and watch all these TV shows and then get that done instead of make an AI learn how to do it. Instead of Googling things while they're recording a podcast? Shut up. <laughs> I knew that last <laughs> Which I definitely have not done three times during the course of this episode. <laughs> I sure have too. <laughs> I, I never Google anything. I'm a Bing man myself, so. Are they still paying people to use Bing? I don't. I mean, I wouldn't. Oh, they were for a long nobody time. Nobody ever paid pays me to do fucking anything. So, oh, that's sad. But it's not true. So let's see. Uh, one quick question for everybody while we're thinking about jokes. When you go into the Captain Proton program and it makes you black and white and kind of does your hair up, does it also restore your pubic hairs to the length they would have been in the 1950s? Oh, yes. God, I hope not. 
Yeah, that's seven of nine's <laughs> major issue with like what has happened down. What is happening inside of my very tight jump? You know, it's actually bad. it's a setting. You know how <laughs> like when you are about to start an RPG, like for example, I'm gonna say Demon Souls because that's the one I did most recently. And you go through the sort of character lineup where you have to adjust like their face shape and their bridge of their nose and stuff like that. It's just in the future, you're doing it to your own body and have like a whole mapping of different pubic styles. So not only can you make it pubic hair to length, but you can like specialize. You can have Italian pubes. You could have Jewish oh. pubes. You could have, mm -hmm. I don't know what other <laughs> kind of pubes exist, I guess. <laughs> Like white people pubes. Having face sliders is now like my new thing I want. Yeah, right. God, in real life, that would rule. I was actually asked to stop serving those uh, <laughs> by the Department of Health. <laughs> oh, no. The Department of Health, also the FBI. Uh, you know, a lot of people said to cut it, <laughs> cut it out. That being said, I have one last, uh, one last wonderful comedic moment that I do very much enjoy in both from, and like this sort of ties it together because it's both a joke in the show and it's a joke in real life. So, Worf's getting married to Jedzia Dax, right? That's hot and cool and awesome. He's gonna have his fucking weird bachelor party, which is a Klingon <laughs> thing. So, all the boys are gonna get to go on the thing, including like a couple of people he barely knows. And then none of the people he knew he served with on the Enterprise for years and years, because that's a right. That's the writing part, and sort of why that's very funny to me is like, oh yeah, you invite this teenage boy you just met <laughs> to your fucking bachelor <laughs> you know, party. It stands to reason that Worf would not have the kinds of friendships that endure past no longer literally being <laughs> trapped in a submarine together. That sucks. Yeah. Like I and I'm gonna use actually his engagement to Jadzia as like an indicator of this. Like he's very controlling. He's very rigid. He's very, you know, scolding. Like he's an asshole. <laughs> he would suck to be around as like a friend. You'd have to have like a very specific kind of mean dad when you were growing up to be able to tolerate his behavior specifically. Well, Jadzia mostly is like, you know what? I'm going to go hang out with this drummer dude that we brought on. Apparently, he's on the crew. Yeah, well, I mean, Jadzia's in it because he fucks good. Like, like that's look, very obvious. Like, after 900 years, you can't show up with the mediocre <laughs> dick. We've talked about this. You got to bring two <laughs> yeah. solid, ridgy boys. That being, all right. That's what I'm so, saying. Uh, so, that's, that's, that is the, like, show joke is that. It's sort of the writing sort of meta outside joke. But the inside joke is also very funny because they all show up thinking, hell yeah, Klingons, they party hard, yeah. right? <laughs> no, this Ritual is sitting in a hot cave doing <laughs> nothing. And the disappointment on the cutback from commercial on their faces is just so wonderful. Because like, oh, what do you think you were going to do? Like, yeah. have a good time? No, they're Klingons. They hate <laughs> everything fun. They suck ass. They only sing songs after a bunch of them died. Well, Worf hates fun, and he uses his culture to justify his crusade against He's the only fun. true Klingon, though. Everybody else is conniving shitheads. That's, that's just a no true Klingon fallacy. No, I, I think this is actually misrepresenting Klingon culture because we see a lot of cultural festivals. We have seen like they have lawyers and shit. Like not every Klingon is a fucking Marine. <laughs> but Worf in particular happens to be of the, you know, very militant Klingon persuasion. Well, you are out there with the Space Navy, so that's fair. I mean, yeah, he's a Marine. He's a Remain Klingon kind of person. Oh, he hey, definitely look. would have been running with the Remain Klingon crew. Um. Okay, but to show oh, me yeah, where Takuma was wrong. <laughs> that, oh God! Uh -huh. I mean, he's like the Klingon equivalent of a Holocaust oh, God. denier. Oh, uh, no, Takuma. Oh, I mean, uh, oh, did God. we just like ruin war? Uh, that wasn't us. <laughs> that was Berman. Sorry, folks. We can't we can't claim any of that. We The work was done before we got here. It's honest. 
I can't deal with it. Oh, because see, here's the thing. And I'm going to disclose a whole lot about myself real quickly with a single sentence here. But Worf has always reminded me so much of my dad. And the worst part is, yeah, my dad's kind of like that. I mean, he's not a Holocaust denier. He's Jewish, right? Like we're direct descendants of the Holocaust. But I mean, he is like big into history. He's weirdly obsessed with the Civil War. He goes around and waves his archaic sword around. Literally, I remember there was a fucking Halloween party we threw when I was a kid where he went as a (laughs) Civil War doctor. This is my dad. Dressed up as a Civil War like surgeon. Oh, he's got like a hacksaw and a gun? This motherfucker rented a horse. (laughs) Okay, well now I'm into it again. I mean, that's that's pretty chill. Like, he just wanted an excuse to have a horse. Yeah, you know, it was a wild fucking evening. But I do think that that, uh, anyway, other than ruining my relationship with Worf and my own father all at once. Hey, again, uh, that work was done before we got here, Rachel. We should note that not every single Klingon is a remain Klingon Klingon. You know, there are some never, uh, what's his name? Yeah, Alexander, <laughs> what a shit ass. Oh, wow. I am that, really, really not no, coming no, I off think, this I think the majority of Klingons, in fact, are not remain Klingon Klingons. Klingons like being able to visit other places and get drunk. Yeah, they have a hedonistic <laughs> culture. So, of course, they have a beautiful, rich art culture. It's kind of like, I would say, probably, artistically, they're closest to Germans. Interesting. They like the opera. They like big drunken festivals. They like really, really dark, violent media. Yeah. And I can say this because I am one. A Klingon? A Klingon? <laughs> yeah. Technically, yeah, we did establish that in the previous episode. So um, uh, one last phenomenal episode we would be wrong to not discuss just because it's so much dumb shit piled on top of itself. Yes. Is take me out of the ball. Yes. Take me yes. out of the holodeck. Take me out of the holosuite. Yes. Um, all right. Holosuite because it's it's Quark's little sex pot rooms that are like six feet long. Like the like that is one of the things we talked about for a second. It's like those rooms are like the size of maybe hotel suite and they play a whole game of baseball with 20 people in it it's so maddening there's no explanation for how these work and it's fine but that episode is absolutely a throwaway lark and it's it's a lot of fun it teach but it's also more of like a baseball movie than it's like very much like a league of their own uh and or field of dreams and or bull durham inspired like oh we should do a baseball (laughs) episode it's definitely a league of their own inspired like it's glorious you know that whole exchange where nog is trying to figure out how to catch the runner that you know that that he needs to tag out (laughs) and Worf tells him find him and kill him (laughs) all right that's a good fucking plan though (laughs) he's got it the hats look so bad they give him the little baseball caps remember uh or odo odo practicing his umpire moves (laughs) Oh, yeah. And throwing him out of the game. The whole the whole deal. And that there's this Vulcan dude that's like, I have learned your game of bases ball and I and my physically, literally physically superior team of trained nine people. We will probably beat you at this game. And they're like, yeah. Yeah, you probably will. Oh, well, we're going to have we got 40 minutes left in the episode, though. So let's get it all set up. One of the best standalone jokes, uh, (laughs) I think, in all of Deep Space Nine, for sure, Trek maybe comes from that episode. And that's where um, Miles is chewing gum. And he's explaining what gum is because apparently they don't they don't they don't have gum oh, anymore yeah. in the 24th century. And so he says, oh, I found the found it in the replicator and I, uh, and I and I made some. And he says, oh, yeah, what kind of flavor did you use? Scotch. Mm. <laughs> nice. <laughs> 
Oh, oh yeah. fucking yeah. There just, we go. It just sounds like really awful for like on a parching baseball diamond. The taste is scotch. Well, I hope it has alcohol in it. Hey, hey, hey. You be quiet, because he's more of he's more than a hero. That's right. He's a union man. <laughs> kind of amazing, actually. I know this is like a brief interjection, but it's amazing how much less class conscious specifically Discovery yeah. is. You would think it would be more, mm. but no, it's less. There is like zero middle class representation. Every single one of them is an <laughs> Ivy League ass nerd. True that. True that. Yeah, true. Well, I, you know, Tegnataro's character, Jet Reno, fucking sweet sci-fi name, Jet Reno. <laughs> God damn. Yes. Like Sparks Nevada. That's fantastic. Jet. Also, just Tignataro. <laughs> yeah. Right. Apparently, she's she, they are perfect. They, yeah. But like, she sort of brings a lot more of a uh, work. I mean, that is the engineer perspective. I think that you're we miss for like in the high science of Discovery. But again, they added it late, and I think the season three and four, the f- the stuff that takes place further afield, gives you a little bit more of that because there's been fewer Turbo Nerd Academies for everyone to go to. So I assume you know you do get a little more rougher and like people actually have to do like okay, well then you fly away in your fucking ship and then what? I'm here stuck shoveling dirt again. Thanks. But like again, you're right. The enlisted man perspective is definitely the, uh, yeah, O'Brien gets that, mo- again, the, that that lower class help, he gets the most opportunity to do those kind of things, too, because he will be the one that makes pokes yeah. at people. <laughs> All right, so we like to wrap it up, as we do, uh, with a game of hologram baseball. Wait, no, 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 hold on. I got something else for this. Who's telling you jokes? So, like, all right, if you are, you are, let's let's hear it. Like, we know they're not fucking funny, but somebody leans over to you at your console. They just sort of sort of sketch in. They just sort of say a joke to you, and they walk off, and you fucking die laughing. Who was that? Definitely Quark. I like it. I like it. I'm working my way through my list here, but you know who I'm, you know, uh, you know, I think frankly, um, me and Bolana could really have some good laughs complaining <laughs> after work. I think Tom Paris is the only person on most of these ships that's even heard a real joke. He's been to prison, <laughs> you understand? That's a place where you have to tell jokes. There's nothing else. So I vote Tom <laughs> Paris. Tom's good for a laugh. For sure. It's going to be, it might be a sexist joke. One out of three, it's going to be sexist, but it will probably still also be funny. So you'll be like, well, come on, Tom. Yeah. (laughs) My obvious choice uh, is going to be (laughs) Luxana Troy, because that woman can talk shit. I'm sure she can talk so much shit. I'm sure she can just throw shade like a willow tree. You know, he's still with the bed. I I am here for the drama. You know, I got to say, we made it through an entire episode about comedy and Trek, and we didn't talk about Loxana Troy until right now. And shame on us. Shame on us. Uh, How dare you consider her to be a comedic device? She's the most dignified woman (laughs) in the goddamn quadrant. Yeah, I think I think that's we're just saving it for our episode on comedy and Loxana Troy. We do have to do like a Loxana special at some point because that is a character that deserves the spotlight yeah. and also demands. Well, it. we definitely gave it to her on yeah. Fashion Week, but she's got so much promise. Oh, but and she is a great vehicle for those comedies oh. of errors and of manners because she is the the diplomats. That's when that happens. That's when you're at dinner and can fuck up real bad and ruin a thing. And you being able to play <laughs> off a weird remark and make it funny rather than awkward is the skill that is the skill then yeah yes. good call on that one Rachel. absolutely well and god imagine like you have immediate and reflexive physical feedback for how they <laughs> responded to it emotionally god too. as a as a stand-up comedian that's been trying not to kill anyone with violent involuntary aspirations caused by staccato diaphragm spasms for no reason we can understand and thinks that's a little dangerous right now it's been a real bummer i'll have to li- hope y'all are listening to the shows <laughs> That was a long, long way to get to that. 
punchline, but we're, we're with you. It mirror neurons, dude. It's tough. It's so hard though. Like this ain't yeah. the same. I mean, right? Yeah. Like this straight up. No, it's not like you don't have yeah. the same feedback. I agree. Like, and it helps sometimes like, you know, sometimes you can like help a little bit when you use cameras and like you see each other's faces at all. But like at the end of the day, it's not the same. You miss so much when you can't catch like tiny like flarings of nostrils and stuff you know or catch tiny flare-ups of COVID. oh no oh no oh, goodness. i sure hope it doesn't flare up again for me that would no suck. well you don't you're not fucking hosting several shows every week please don't yell at me whoever knows me that listens to this and knows who i'm talking about anyway that's been the end <laughs> Listen, of this show no, i mean the entire comedy scene is full of this right now not to get too like inside baseball but every single somebody say baseball go on uh-huh. get out of here Ooh. every single community has schisms in it and right now comedy's biggest schism aside from political correctness versus you know active fascism or whatever is specifically like whether people are doing live shows uh wait i'm sorry i feel like you're ignoring the improv stand-up divide which will be the ultimate line on which all of humanity's drawn <laughs> god that's so fucking true i take it back Third anyway best. the biggest schism i see in the comedy stand-up field right now is specifically like yeah whether you're doing shows yeah, well, there's, yeah. it's weird because like those venues need money. I get it. But it's fucking a weird time to go into a small room with a low ceiling and fucking violently <laughs> aspirate. I don't know what to, I don't know how to help you. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's how Star Trek would describe <laughs> laughing. Oh, you mean? Oh, you mean accurately? <laughs> That's definitely how Data would describe it. Uh, well, from our hearts to Joe Piscopo's to yours, it has been an absolute joy to get to speak at y'all because that's kind of how this medium works with you, the four, the four of us, obviously. But at y'all, the listener, um, I am. Uh, we're we're always doing this. We do this every week unless we fuck it up, and then we probably try and do a live stream anyway. Go check out Corey and I ripping apart Star Trek fashion. We did that a couple of weeks ago. It's still up on the Not Safe for Wonks YouTube, and I'm sure there's a link to it somewhere on a website go check out our twitter at gay space communism and rachel give them the rest of the plug bag Aha! We're also part of Not Safe Media, which is a network of podcasts and live streams made by and for people who actually are organizers and leftist people who actually do things. We have a lot of really great shows. We have Hot Girl Agenda. We have Sentai Truther Club. We have this show, obviously. And then, of course, I can't believe I'm forgetting our flagship, Not Safe for Wonks, uh, which is an interview podcast where we talk to progressives and leftists all around the country. And it's fun. We beat cool people. Uh, if you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash not safe. And that money goes to the entire network. We're cooperative and horizontal and so on and so forth. So it helps everybody do that. You can also follow me on Twitter at punished Rachel K. And y'all want to drop your. Oh, I bet we can follow any of us on Twitter. Where would we do that if we were wanting to follow you, Corey? Uh, I am at CM Archibald. Very creative username. But there you go. I'm pretty easy to find. Is that from something? Is that a reference? <laughs> it is, actually. Sweet. Amy? I've been Amy Hassel, and you can find me a Hassel on Twitter. That's uh, two S's and four A's. And, you know, I talk about, you know, gardening and music and being horizontal. I'll say. Um, and I'm, of course, Paul Byron. You can catch me at hashtag subtext, all one word, on Twitter. Uh, Critical Bitcast, also, that's a lot of fun. Hey, and if you're wondering why we didn't talk about Q, the trickster god of the Star Trek universe, in this, the comedy episode, it's because we don't want to trifle with him. He's very frightening, and he'd show up with a cigar and a thing and a mariachi band. That's mm, not into it. Anyway, Space the Rich, y'all. Bye, everybody. Love y'all. Space the Rich. <laughs>